Emerging Markets Equities Podcast by Aberdeen. Hello, everybody. This is Nick Robinson from Aberdeen, and you're listening to the Emerging Markets Equity Podcast, the show that explores the factors that underpin our thinking on emerging markets. We ask our guests for big questions from key individuals to evolving trends in order to identify and profit from opportunities in the region. In today's episode, we're going to talk about the trend of nearshoring and how the changing structure of global supply chains is impacting the companies and economies of emerging markets. To discuss this, I'm delighted to be joined today by my colleague, Gabrielle Sachs. Gabrielle has been on the team for 15 years, and as well as having worked out of our Sao Paulo office, He's just recently returned to London after several years based out of our Singapore office. So he's witnessed at first hand how some of these structural shifts have occurred. Gabriel, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you on. Thanks, Nick. Looking forward to our conversation today. Great. Well, let's get going. So I suppose for most of our careers, a dominant trend in the global economy has been globalization and the increasing specialization of economies. So you know, obvious examples being manufacturing moving to China, call centers moving to India, you know, that kind of thing. But more recently in the last five years or so, we've seen you know, the Trump presidency and then the pandemic, and we're beginning to see a bit of a reversal of this. So perhaps we could start with defining nearshoring, you know, what it means, you know, is it globalization in reverse, and why is it occurring? Sure. Well, well, there's no denying that nearshoring has become a, a hot topic in financial markets, and it's coming up in many of our conversations with corporates in emerging markets. You know, at its core, nearshoring is really just another way of describing the process of outsourcing, but one that's more selective in terms of which countries are eligible for that work, with a particular emphasis on proximity to end customers. And aside from you know the benefits of accessing lower labor costs, nearshoring has Additional benefits such as lower shipping costs, reduced communication barriers, given that the work is typically done in similar time zones, and also improved quality control. Uh, in terms of your question of, of why it's occurring, I, you know, I think there's at least two important factors driving nearshoring. The first is, is obviously geopolitics, as you highlighted, particularly the deteriorating relationship between the US and China, where both countries are looking to reduce dependency on each other. And the other is the impact of COVID, which uh, evidenced the need to create more resilience in global supply chains and diversify sourcing. And, and to illustrate this point, you know, you might remember that during COVID, you saw many labor shortages, ports being clogged up, ships held at sea, uh, as well as, as severe factory closures across Asia. So, so creating a second manufacturing base uh, is one way uh, of, of getting around these issues and future-proofing your supply chain. COVID has also accelerated the ability to work remotely, which for some industries has improved flexibility to work from different locations. But, you know, just as you mentioned, nearshoring is just one way in which the, the outsourcing process has evolved, with other terms such as friendshoring or, or localization being other ways of describing that process of bringing manufacturing or service provision closer to home, either in friendlier countries or indeed to your own home market. And then that's largely to reduce political or other operational risks. Uh, I think ultimately this is part of uh, an overall deglobalization that the world is going through. And it's driven both by the private and the public sector. And and it tends to be inflationary as well, uh, which is another, I guess, uh, hot topic at the moment. 
Yeah, I think we'll we'll certainly get onto the inflation issue a little bit later on. But I, I suppose thinking about nearshoring and the changing kind of structure of of supply chains as as companies and economies start valuing manufacturing in in more friendly and convenient locations. Yeah, which countries and sectors are likely to to benefit the most from that trend? Yeah, I think I think the most obvious or the most cited example is Mexico, given its proximity to the U.S. and in particular the northern region of Mexico. Uh, and you know, we have several companies across our portfolios that that benefit from that from that, be, be it airport operators, regional banks, or or real estate investment trusts. Uh, one of the key plays on this theme for us has been a, an industrial real estate investment trust in northern Mexico, which is really focused on warehouses for global multinationals. And that company has seen a clear uplift in demand and pricing over the last few years as a result of nearshoring trends. And actually, in their latest results release, they did announce that they'd be accelerating the expansion uh, of their warehouses from you know five years to sort of three years. Um, and and this demand is really driven by large automakers, for example, like Tesla uh, or, or, or other automakers. So, you know, only this week we saw Kia announce plans to expand its plant uh, in Nuevo Leon state to focus on EVs. Uh, and they're planning to spend about one billion US dollars and create over 1000 jobs. And, you know, it, it really is happening. You see uh, in the latest trade data from the US, Mexico has overtaken China to become the U.S. top trading partner for the first time ever with over 15% share of, of total U.S. imports. And, and that compares to Canada at 14% and China at 13%. And, you know, if you compared this a year ago, Mexico was at 14% and China was higher at 18%. Uh, so, so, you know, Mexico is clearly, clearly a clear beneficiary of this. Meanwhile, you know, Southeast Asia has been seeing increased foreign direct investment particularly from large conglomerates in the more developed Asian markets, such as Korea and Japan, who are also looking to reduce their reliance on China. Uh, an example of this is, is Samsung, which has very large production facilities in Vietnam, uh, which is a country that, that has been growing exceptionally fast as one of the, the best hubs for tech and consumer electronics manufacturing globally. And actually what you see in Asia, which is quite interesting, is is a bit of a race going on between governments really trying to enact structural reforms to reduce uh, constraints for nearshoring, attract business and, and, and foreign investment. Uh, and you'll see different countries benefit in different ways. You know, Indonesia, I think, has a good chance of, of developing its capabilities as an industrial hub, given its abundant natural resources. So it's focusing on, on supplying commodities such as nickel for EV batteries, uh, while countries like India, on the other hand, still benefit from their great demographic trends with an unmatched ability to supply engineers or tech graduates at scale and at a reasonable cost, which should ensure that it maintains its status as a, as a global hub for IT services. But they're, they're not stopping there. You know, they're doing uh, they have a made in India strategy, which is really aimed at grabbing more market share in manufacturing and the tech supply chain. You mentioned Indian IT services, which, you know, as, as we know, as investors in many of these companies, they've been huge beneficiaries of of globalization. But within the tech sector, at least, there's another huge trend at the moment, which uh, the market's getting very excited about, particularly few days post the earnings report from NVIDIA, uh, which was you know, quite incredible. 
um, you know, this, this trend of uh, artificial intelligence is, is really moving to the forefront. And, and how's that likely to combine with the trend of working from anywhere within the Indian IT services companies? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. I think I think you really have to separate the two issues. I think you know the work from anywhere uh, development has really allowed IT services companies to to further diversify uh, their sort of bases or, or their supply or their hubs. So, for example, Indian IT services companies are setting up centers in LATAM or Eastern Europe to be closer to their clients, uh, and it's also helped them actually benefit from a cost perspective, which interestingly enough, despite, you know, de-globalization, what you're actually seeing in, in IT services is outsourcing has increased, you know, clients have become more comfortable with companies uh, having their workforce elsewhere, because they're more comfortable that, you know, these people can work, it's secure, and, and their, their, their client confidentiality won't be breached. So, You've actually seen IT services companies reduce on-site presence in their clients' headquarters and increase outsourcing. And that's been accelerating as well because of really tight labor markets in the US and, and places like UK and Europe. I guess just to illustrate that point, I think, you know, if you looked at the, the largest IT services company uh, globally, uh, they have announced that they would be moving to a 75% remote working versus 25% office so again, that's another cost uh, benefit where they're reducing uh, their office space. But but just changing tack, I guess on, on on the question of AI, you know, I think it presents both an opportunity and a threat to these companies. It's clearly an opportunity uh, for those companies that were born in the digital age or those that are doing more complex digital transformation projects for clients. But it can be uh, a risk for those businesses that are doing more traditional outsourcing. You know. Think of simple call centers or help desks, which are quite low value add. And those companies could, could see themselves disrupted quite rapidly if, if they haven't already been dis- disrupted, given, given you know, uh, that, that kind of work has been uh, a legacy type of work for many years. So the end result of all this is actually further automation, productivity benefits, and, and, and likely consolidation in, in the hands of the higher, highest quality players. I personally don't feel that AI will lead to mass layoffs, uh, but it, it probably will lead to slower pace of hiring for IT services firms. Uh, and, and certainly for a portion of the IT workforce, you, you know, you could see some of them left behind if they aren't reskilled. Yes, yeah, so it certainly sounds like a potential disruptive force for, for those companies. Um, you mentioned a little bit about some of the governments in Asia trying to enact reforms in order to remove some of the constraints to, to nearshoring. Perhaps you could just talk us through what some of the other constraints that companies have uh, when they're thinking about nearshoring. Yeah, you know, there's, there's several constraints to, to nearshoring and localization, particularly when it's driven by policymakers rather than the natural economic forces. These include the, 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 the sort of obvious things like language barriers, lack of adequate skills in the labor force, or a poor supply chain ecosystem, be that in terms of the actual suppliers of raw materials uh, or, or the logistics infrastructure, all of which means that when you relocate, you do end up with, with higher production costs. You know, the other major constraint is, is geopolitics, which, you know, for, for certain strategic industries, such as high-end chip manufacturing, uh, it is an extremely difficult process. And, and I think Taiwan is the perfect example of this, where 
you know, it's, it's a small country, but it's created a very deep uh, and complex text cluster that's been built over many decades. It's, it's extremely difficult to, to replicate that elsewhere. Uh, and, and the dominance of, of TSMC, in particular in, in high-end chip manufacturing, uh, is the best example of that. And, and uh, what you're seeing is uh, US in particular, but other Western markets try and bring that supply chain back uh, to, to the U.S. soil, and, and that has become an issue of national security and has also brought about things like the CHIP Act, which, which is providing almost 300 billion U.S. dollars in new funding to boost research and, and manufacturing of semiconductors in the U.S. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned Taiwan. When I was a kid, made in Taiwan generally stood for you know, plastic rubbish that, uh, that you get given at Christmas, yet... Uh, today they're home to some of the most advanced semiconductor manufacturing on the planet. So it's a really great example of a country that's managed to move up the value chain. You know, staying on, on Taiwan Semiconductor, as they start to diversify their manufacturing in terms of geographies, what does this mean for costs and inflation? You know, I, I think I read that uh, Taiwan Semi are looking to charge 30% more for chips that are manufactured out of the US. And so there must be examples of many other companies that are doing similar at higher cost. Absolutely, yeah. So so TSMC has actually in the past tried to set up facilities in the US, but they largely gave up because production costs are so much higher. And again, it doesn't have that ecosystem that, that is so tightly knit in, in, in Taiwan. So yeah, even accounting for the large tax breaks and other subsidies that the US government is, is offering to lure the company to the US, you know, it is very likely that you'll see higher prices for semiconductors that are manufactured domestically. So that's something that TSMC themselves have acknowledged, and I think something that the U.S. government is well aware of. But again, it's an example of the fact that this process of deglobalization is inflationary. Uh, you know, you're to an extent duplicating an existing supply chain, which will cause inflation and, and, and possibly dent corporate profit margins as well. But it's something that, that policymakers have decided is strategically important. And, and clearly for, for those, uh, those companies uh, like TSMC, you know, they, they need to be seen to be doing something about this, given, um, given how many customers they have in the U.S. You mentioned Mexico earlier as a, as a beneficiary. Do you think that extends into Brazil also and, and the rest of LATAM? I think it should. You know, I'm Brazilian by background and, you know, I'd love to see Brazil capitalizing on this. Um, but it hasn't really happened in earnest. You know, I think Mexico is the best example. Uh, I think there are other examples like Costa Rica, but it is, it's a very small market. And I guess it's, it's more for, for things like IT services. But yeah, I think Brazil should have a part to play in all this, particularly from a friend shoring rather than near shoring perspective. But there are several things that are holding it back. I think the volatile politics is an issue uh, with lack of clarity on, on foreign policy in particular. You, know, you see the new government hasn't been doing a very good job on this front and, and has been ambiguous on things like you know the Russia-Ukraine conflict. For example, uh, there's also significant red tape and bureaucracy in terms of Brazil's complex labor and tax laws. And, and again, that, that sort of Slightly, well, it's not slightly, but the, the further distance that Brazil has to, to Europe and the US does mean that, that logistics costs are, are higher. But, you know, there are positives as well. I think Brazil has ample resources. Uh, it's got a large population, which gives it critical mass. 
as well as a fast developing tech ecosystem, particularly around fintech. Uh, and it's a diversified economy, you know, so it should have the means of offering a, a reasonably healthy supply chain for different industries. And I think I think the, the renewables supply chain in particular, which is at the moment very dominated by China and Asia, you know, possibly could have a role to play in Brazil. Uh, and you could combine that with with uh, as well the, the element of carbon credits as well, which I think Brazil Brazil is really a leader in, despite all the noise, it is a leader in renewables. Uh, so that could be quite exciting and hopefully it comes through. Yeah, I mean, I always find Brazil quite an incredible country in terms of renewables. I mean, yeah, 80% of their power generation comes from renewable sources. You know, the enormous, powerful rivers they have all over the country able to provide all that power. In Southeast Asia, from where you've just relocated, which which markets would you be more positive on as, as beneficiaries from the trend? Yeah, I, I've been a, a big bull on Vietnam. Uh, you know, I think at the stock level, it's it's harder to get access to, but I think from a top-down perspective, it is a clear winner. You know, rightly or wrongly, given its one-party state, it has a pretty stable political system that is actually quite friendly to the West, and and it helps direct infrastructure development where it's needed and, and helps develop the country from a strategic point of view. It's also an extremely urbanized country, you know, high high density, a lot of hardworking labor force. And it's already got a thriving export market with several trade agreements with the likes of the EU. So, so it's a country that has been doing its uh, homework in terms of, you know, setting the stage up for, for becoming an export hub. Uh, and you've seen foreign direct investment over many years, be very healthy at sort of five to ten percent of GDP per annum. So I think it's got a good chance of of, of mimicking the experience of China in, in terms of becoming one of the key world's key manufacturing bases. But but yeah, as I said earlier, you know, different countries should benefit uh, in different ways. There is a bit of a race going on, and and I think as 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 a side note, for example, Singapore has really been cementing its status as as a financial and services hub for Asia now that Hong Kong has become less independent politically. Uh, and, you know, it's been able to attract capital flows and talent, which should benefit the economy over the long term. And I think it's a good example of uh, the shifting tides in the global economy and, and the changing flow of, of capital, people, uh, uh, etc. So, so it, I think it is, you know, again, uh, Different markets uh, stand to benefit in Southeast Asia. And as a region provided, geopolitics doesn't get too out of hand in terms of, you know, generating a real conflict uh, between you know, China and the US. You know, Southeast Asia stands to benefit as a whole. Yeah, I, I think on Singapore, you know, anecdotally, we do hear a lot from our colleagues in Singapore how crazy the property rental market has become there since Singapore has now got the status as, as a financial hub in the region. So. I suspect that it must be a bit of a relief to uh, to move away, at least to the slightly calmer property market in London. Well, yeah, I guess you know both are very expensive, but I think I think one of the interesting data points I got while I was leaving is you know my, I was only in my flat for two years and the rent went up sixty five percent for for someone who was coming in from Hong Kong. So, and and actually you've seen stamp duties uh, for foreigners or expats. I can't remember what the number is, but it's something like 20, 25% now. So it's, you know, extremely, uh, extremely high because, you know, as a small place, they do need to protect uh, the locals and, and avoid too much capital coming in, uh, given Singapore status as, as a safe and, and 
safe place for your capital with lots of countries around where you know the politics is a bit a bit more 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 uncertain put it that way yeah well we've i guess we've spent most of the podcast talking about the beneficiaries of nearshoring including those those singapore landlords you mentioned perhaps um you know we could finish just on the other side of that and talk about which markets are, are most likely to suffer and i suppose particularly china potentially given you know, the historic dominance of the manufacturing sector there you know is, is is china likely to suffer or do you think that's going to be counterbalanced a bit by their their own efforts to try and localize as as much as possible yeah it's a great question um you know i think we've been talking a lot about uh these really significant moves in in the global world order as it were but you know it it moves at a relatively slow pace i think china still accounts for almost a third of global manufacturing and there really is no single country that can replicate its scale and efficiency so so china is not going anywhere uh in the short term you know given how embedded supply chains are these these things can't change overnight but but you know all the things that we've been describing i think is 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 where the marginal investment or marginal capital is going and it is going elsewhere uh so 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 it is, it is potentially a negative for china i think you know chinese corporates themselves are are being rational and looking to set up shop elsewhere uh partly as a way of circumventing sanctions so so they have been quite active in investing in indonesia vietnam and, and even in mexico um and and you know i think the, the Chinese have been deliberately trying to shift their their economy to a more services oriented economy, consumer driven economy, with less of a focus on on infrastructure development in particular, but also to an extent less manufacturing. Uh, but but the other point you make about uh, localization is extremely important in China, and it's something that the government for many years has been trying to increase the country's self sufficiency, be that in terms of, of uh, access to resources, manufacturing, or high-end technology. So we see many industries where national champions are emerging uh, and where there is uh, top-down sort of uh, command to try and replace foreign firms, be that in terms of, of software development, for example, so replacing uh, ERP software for or- from Oracle and, 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 and SAP, uh, or be it in terms of semiconductors, renewables, uh, or medical equipment, for, to name a few. So, so it, you know, it, it is a negative for China, but it also throws up many investment opportunities for us in China. So it's it's not all bad, uh, but it'll be interesting to see, you know, how 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 these countries manage these 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 forces uh, over the next few years. Well, great. Yeah, no, certainly that's uh, that's an interesting point and. And I certainly feel like we've spent a lot of time looking at opportunities in China from that that localization perspective, and there are some really great businesses that that you can invest in. And I think that's a that's a good point to uh, draw the podcast to a close. So the only thing really left for me to do is is thank my guest Gabriel. Thanks, thanks very much. Thank you, Nick. And thanks to everyone who took the time today to listen in. If you enjoyed today, then please download our other podcasts from our website or wherever you normally get your podcasts. Watch out for our next episode and tune in. Thank you for listening to the Emerging Markets Equities Podcast brought to you by Aberdeen. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and for more great content, visit Aberdeen.com.
This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is provided for informational purposes only and should not be considered as an offer, investment recommendation or solicitation to deal in any of the investments or products mentioned herein and does not constitute investment research. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of Aberdeen. The companies discussed in this podcast have been selected for illustrative purposes only or to demonstrate our investment management style and not as an investment recommendation or indication of their future performance. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up and investors may get back less than the amount invested. Past performance is not a guide to future returns, return projections or estimates and provide no guarantee of future results.